You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning from the book of Revelation, beginning with chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Revelation 11, 1 through 14. We're continuing in our study of this uh, incredible book of the Bible today, but just for a couple of more weeks, and then we'll take one month during the month of July to preach, as we typically do in the summer, a brief topical series that the pastors think will be particularly useful to our church. And this summer, we're going to be preaching a series of a handful of messages on how and why we love the Bible. And we want to continue to keep our focus on the Word of God in these times. There's so many things going on in our world. There's so many distractions, so many voices. We want to keep hearing the voice of God in the Scriptures. And so we pray this this series will help us. And so this is a great time also to invite friends and neighbors and others to help them come and, and hear as well the importance of knowing God's Word and finding our comfort and help and hope in it. But this morning we continue in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. As we begin this morning, I want to share a brief quote with you from, from Tertullian, one of the church fathers in the second century. This quote really helps to frame out where this text is going to take us, somewhat of a difficult place, as we think about the difficult times coming in the future according to the book of Revelation, and yet remembering the great hope that we have because our king is in control of it all. Listen to what Tertullian said about suffering in the church. He says, we are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endured pain and death so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us, and you frustrate your purpose. Because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals, and when they find out, they join us. That's a powerful quote this morning to help us think about a time coming in the future according to the book of Revelation. And it is also a reminder of the times that have been true to the church from the beginning, that there is a world in opposition against us. But in our privileged country and time, We really know very little, if anything, about the blood of martyrs, about the blood of martyrs, which Tertullian says is the seed of the church. In other words, as the church may suffer in the world and even to the point of shedding blood, that even their their blood, our blood would be the seed of the church, causing the church to grow more and more. And while we're thankful for where we live and the time in which we live, nevertheless, their blood of the past And this blood in the future is our blood. And so we want to honor them with our lives, and we want to be prepared for what may come someday. Today, of course, we celebrate two holidays here, Father's Day and Juneteenth. But in the future, according to this text, there is what appears to be another holiday coming, one that some have called Dead Witnesses Day. And it will be a celebration of the world and, strangely, 
the church. We want to consider three truths this morning from this text, Revelation 11, verses 1 through 14, about God's witnesses. Because we want to be God's witnesses now, and by looking forward to two particular witnesses in the book of Revelation, we can gain truth and hope to help us in these times. And that's what we want to do this morning, beginning with this truth. That God's witnesses, all of God's witnesses who are faithful and true, persevere even through opposition. You know, in our church, a lot of times you'll hear us talk about something that is sort of an evil trio of opposition to the people of God. That trio is the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's a trio that has probably been made most famous by the Reformers and the Puritans as they looked at the difficult world in which they were living, as they also considered the power of their own flesh with real seriousness, a seriousness that is very uncommon today to to be able to look at our own faults, our own sin, our own need for grace. But then also, they had such a keen understanding and insight on the place and the work of our enemy, the devil, that this trio became something that stood out in their minds as the the key three-part factor in the world against which they were striving to the glory of God, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that all three of those oppose us in their own way. The world, of course, is under the curse of sin, and the world has become under sin, this place that is at enmity with God, at odds with God, opposing God and his people at every turn. Perhaps this may be one of the reasons why not only we see the world against any kind of theism, belief in God, but especially against a certain kind of theism, belief in Jesus Christ, who is God. That may be why sometimes we see that that other religions in the world get a pass when Christians don't. That's not a complaint. That's just the way that it is. And we know from the word of God that because the world is at odds with Christ, the world will be at odds with his people. But if that wasn't enough, we also have another opposition in the trio, and it's our own flesh. As Christians, we're wise in the scriptures not to simply say that, that that our problems are out there. They're not even ultimately out there. They're ultimately in here. They're in our hearts. They're in our fallen flesh. They're in this fallen body that one day we will be freed from and given glorified bodies. We'll be finally renewed. Sin will be done away. The the book of Revelation is about those end times when Jesus brings everything back together again and brings us into his perfect kingdom. No more tears, no more sin, no more heartache. But in addition to that, we also know, along with the Reformers and the Puritans and Christians of every era in church history, that we also face an enemy who is the devil, an enemy who wishes to work us woe. He's our tempter. He's the accuser of the brethren. He and his crowd, though limited, are at work at all times around the world in the lives of Christians and churches to pull them away from Christ so that if in some way, though it's impossible that they might thwart God's plans. I think that it's this trio and other reasons why Jesus so clearly cautions his followers about the importance of perseverance to the end. You read him say in the Gospels, he who perseveres to the end, she who perseveres to the end will be saved There's this theme of perseverance all the time against opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil scattered throughout Scripture because we need to be people who persevere to the end, ultimately to reach the final finish line of the Christian life. 
When we think about that, we think about the world that we live in, we think about our own flesh, we think about the devil. It is amazing to think that anyone perseveres. It's not surprising to me that we have so much opposition. That makes sense. What is amazing to me is considering that opposition, how anyone perseveres. How does anyone get to the finish line? Well, we know from the word of God, it is by grace alone. It's amazing that perseverance is even a thing in a world like this, among people like us, facing an enemy like him. It's amazing. I have enjoyed on social media and other places reading and seeing, following some different ultra-marathon runners. I, I think it's in part because I'm, I'm really enamored with the life that they're living and the training that they're doing. It's really incredible. But also, I'm really interested in that because there's such a shadow of the Christian life for me in that. When I see their struggle and their training and their work and the opposition and the difficulty and the distance that they're running... It reminds me of what we often read about in Scripture about the Christian life, that we are not running a sprint. It's not how fast can you get to the finish line. It's not going to be a brief time of of difficulty and challenge and opposition. And on the other side of the coin, it's not going to be a brief time of grace and help and comfort. It's a long time. I read about one of the most difficult ultra marathons. Those are the longest races. One called the Iditarod Trail Invitational in Alaska. It has some different uh, levels that you can run in, starting out at the very bottom at running 130 miles. Then from there, it goes up in a couple of increments to 1,000 miles. Participants in this race are able to run or bike or swim at different times along the same iconic Iditarod Trail, all while dealing with gale-forced winds, sometimes sub-zero temperatures as far below as negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit. However, as you can imagine, this is not something that many of us would do, even if we wanted to. We would still have to qualify, and the only way to qualify is first by finishing the 350-mile race and prove that you have the winter survival skills to persevere to the end. Now, as amazing as that is, what we don't want to lose sight of this morning is that that is the Christian life. Sometimes I fear that when we talk about the Christian life with unbelievers and we share the gospel, we, we sometimes lighten up on the reality of what it means to follow Christ. It is not a sprint. It's not a half marathon. It's not a marathon. It is an ultra-marathon. It is far beyond anything that we can think or imagine, such to the point that even when we look at these actual races with actual people, we wonder, how does anyone finish? Just as we do with the Christian life, how does anyone finish? Well, this first truth that we want to see in the first few verses of Revelation chapter 11 is that God's witnesses who are faithful and true persevere through opposition. By grace, they actually do make it to the end of the ultra-marathon. You notice in verse 1 that John is told to measure the church. It says, Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. It's a clear picture of what he's being asked to do. He's being asked to measure those or count those who are among God's people who are worshiping him in truth. It is an approach to stewardship and care and protection for them because of the times that are going on in the world. 
But then in verse 2, we learn about some two witnesses who I think are best understood as Moses and Elijah or symbols for Moses and Elijah. And they receive authority, as we read here, to prophesy for 1260 days. In verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now that 1260 days, if you think about it, is three and a half years. For three and a half years, they are granted authority to prophesy or to preach in sackcloth. That's a picture of grief and humility and sorrow and judgment in the world. Preaching and preaching and preaching in mourning for repentance because of the things going on in the world. It seems clear that this is happening during this great tribulation that we have been reading about, and it's another example of God's grace that here are two witnesses who rise up and are given authority to preach, but notice that they're not preaching on level ground. It's not a level playing field where they are. In fact, everything is stacked against them. They have all manner of opposition at this time. Everything about the world, perhaps even the flesh and the devil, are becoming heightened at this time. And these two witnesses, though, are seen in the vision as prophesying consistently, consistently, consistently. We see that there's opposition because in verse 2, the voice says, leave out the courtyard in the measurement of the temple which is outside the temple, and do not measure it because it has been given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. When we read about the holy city, it's hard not to think about Jerusalem. So it seems that there's this picture in the vision that while John is going to measure the church or count those who belong, he leaves out the courtyard, and then the nations of the world, the oppositional world system is going to fight against the holy city of Jerusalem, perhaps a reference to to those Jews who are there in Jerusalem. And that's why the two witnesses are there to rise up and to preach. God called them, in verse 3 in particular, to prophesy, to preach against incredible opposition. And what's even more amazing than the calling that they would do this is the fact that they actually did persevere. How would you persevere in the midst of this? You take that picture of the ultra marathon again, put yourself there on the side of the mountain, hiking up the trail, running as fast as you can, 350, 500, 1,000 miles. How would you make it? You have to say as a Christian, only by grace alone, only by God's miraculous working in them. And that's what we see here. It's an amazing picture of God's miraculous work among his witnesses It's an encouragement that we take from it because we know that we have been called by Christ to himself and we've become his witnesses. We are those who are called also in this time to prophesy, to proclaim, to announce good news, to be his ambassadors in the world. And so when we read what happens to these two witnesses, it ought to comfort us, it ought to encourage us, it ought to uplift us because we see the way that God works in them, the way that he causes them to persevere. Look at verse 4, the way that they are described. John says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. These are two symbols that have to do with the giving of light. Olive trees, which would make olive oil or oil for lamps, and also the lampstands that would burn. You're getting a twofold picture in these witnesses of what their purpose is at this time as witnesses. They're lights to the world. 
And they are lights to the world. They continue shining with God's help. And they persevere in miraculous and even violent ways. Continue on in the text. Look at verse 5. We see God's miraculous protection of them. This is not an ordinary thing that ordinary humans do. In this vision, there's a picture of some supernatural defense of them, some supernatural persevering of them. Because John says in verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, the two witnesses, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And so if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Not only that, they have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. God clearly is at work in this vision, in this future time, among his witnesses to persevere them in the face of incredible opposition to accomplish his purposes. It's an incredible picture. It's not an incredible picture of the witnesses. It is an incredible picture of God, God and his power, and the fact that Jesus will spare no effort to bring about his final plans in the world. Hear that again. Jesus will spare no effort to bring about his final plans in the end. I love the way that Jim Elliott, as well as Lottie Moon, two missionaries, Jim Elliott to the the Indians, who was martyred. You've heard that story before. The way that he put it, echoing in some strange way, Lottie Moon, missionary to China many years before, who said virtually the same thing. He says, remember... You are immortal until your work is done. But don't let the sands of time get into the eyes of your vision to reach those who still sit in darkness. They simply must hear. Now those are haunting words knowing anything about Jim Elliot or other missionaries who have died in the course of their service to the Lord in proclaiming the gospel, even dying at the hands of those who they were preaching to. You are immortal until your work is done. What kind of courage should that give you as a witness to Jesus Christ? How often, you and I, I feel this all the time in sharing the gospel. I feel so weak. I feel so afraid. I I am so concerned about what's going to happen to me. And usually it's something really piddly and small, some small slight or insult or someone's not going to like me or be my friend, let alone that I would shed my blood for Christ. But even then, listen to Jim Elliott, you are immortal until your work is done. Why is that? It's because God is immortal and Jesus will not spare any effort to see that his people fulfill their purpose in the world. It is exactly what Lottie Moon said. I have the firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. As we come to the end of these first six verses, we take a moment just to give ourselves some application to life. How should we use this text? How should we think about what God is doing among these witnesses? Because we want to be his witnesses. Well, don't let the sands of time, to use Jim Elliott's words, get in the eyes of your vision. I find that happening so much in my life. 
that the sands of time, the passing of time, the regular daily routine of life, all of the things that are going on, the way that Jesus seems to be delaying. Why is he not coming again? When's it going to happen? I get in this routine and I kind of lay back and then days go on where I've lost my vision. I don't share the gospel too much or I don't engage people very much. I've got other things to do. But Jim Elliott says this, don't let the sands of time get into the eyes of your vision. In other words, from a positive way, keep your eyes clear. Keep your mind on Christ and what he has given you to do. And do so with confidence because, need we say it again, you're immortal until your work is done. It's such a reflection of what Jesus Christ was in his earthly life leading up to his death. I've often thought about him as a a helpless sort of little baby. We have babies in our church. You see them being carried around and, you know, in the carriers and bounced on knees and held and they have to be fed and coddled all the time. And and if someone didn't take care of them, what would happen? They they surely would, would die. I wondered the same thing about Jesus. He lived in a much more dangerous place, I think, What if a rock had fallen upon him? Would he have died? As a baby, if a a large rock had fallen off a mountain and crushed him on the ground, would he have died? No, he wouldn't. Because he's immortal. Until his work is done. Of course, we know in the greatest sense he's immortal. He, He will never ultimately die. He's always been and always will be. But nevertheless, in his ministry, it was all wrapped up in God's perfect plan that could not be thwarted. It could not be changed even by an iota of a second. He will fulfill his plans in him. And that is true of us. So we want to take our calling seriously because of this. But also because... We need this truth because of the next truth. And that is the perseverance in the scriptures. When we read about perseverance, we read about perseverance against opposition. We read about these two witnesses who are are breathing fire out of their mouths and destroying anyone who seeks to stop them from their prophesying for these three and a half years. It doesn't mean that they won't suffer. And it doesn't mean that they won't at some point die when their work is finished. And that's what we see next, though, is that God's witnesses often do suffer in their ministry. This has been true throughout church history, and it is true especially here in this text. These witnesses, who one moment for a time were breathing fire and extinguishing their enemies as they prophesied in the midst of a great tribulation against what we would call the world, the flesh, and the devil— they do die. They were killed. And not only were they killed, but they were humiliated. In this next part of the text, beginning in verse 7, this is the first instance that we read of 36 references in the book of Revelation to someone called the beast. The beast arises out of the abyss that we recently read about. It's that bottomless pit of the demonic. And he clearly, as we look at other texts, which you don't have time to do right now, He clearly appears to be the Antichrist who is mentioned by John and by Paul. John calls him the Antichrist. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness, a demonically inspired person who will rule the world for a time as a counterfeit Christ. In 2 John 2, this is what John says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, Even now, many antichrists have appeared. From this we know 
that it is the last hour. Even in those days, he was observing and he was talking about under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these early versions of the Antichrist or opposition in the world against the gospel that was mounting and mounting until here suddenly the beast that comes out of the abyss, then we find will make war with them, the two witnesses, verse 7, and overcome them and kill them. The beast that comes out of the abyss makes war with them. There is some kind of a great battle over time in which he seeks them out and kills them. But not only that, not only do we see the beast of the Antichrist and the work of the devil among these witnesses bringing them to an end, but we see also the world and the world's response to this. Think about how they had been proclaiming in sackcloth for three and a half years, preaching the gospel to the world, compelling them to repent, warning them of what was coming in this heightened time of tribulation, calling them, I believe, calling them to Christ. But now here they are humiliated. Notice verse 8. Their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. Their bodies would lie in the street. This is humiliation, not even given a proper burial. They're left in the street for everyone to see. And what do the nations, the peoples, the tribes, the languages, what do they do when they see their dead bodies? Verse 9, they look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. They're out in the street and will not allow their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And then notice this, verse 10. There is a holiday. There's an incredible celebration in the world of the nations and the people and the languages around of what one theologian has called, what we call it this morning, Dead Witnesses Day. It's not a time for mourning of the people of the world. In fact, it is a time for celebration. Verse 10, those who live on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another Because these two prophets, in their view, tormented those who live on the earth. There is another celebration coming. Dead Witnesses Day. But I think that buried here in this text, at this time, there is a lesson also about suffering which plays out across redemptive history. That while the world may be celebrating the death of these two witnesses, the church is celebrating as well. You see, because that's what the church has always done when her witnesses served to the very end and even gave their lives in service to their king who gave his life for them, they celebrate. They rejoice over this. This is what happens. God's most faithful witnesses are able to rejoice in suffering and endurance and even death. If we think about this again in other earthly terms of also athletes, think about the athletes that you have been around or you have observed on television or read about a particular elite athletes who go through incredible strenuous training to prepare for their season. 
they're lifting weights. The OSU football team will be lifting and lifting all through the offseason. They will be putting themselves to pain. They will be running sprints. They will be doing agility drills. Every day they will go home exhausted. They will wake up every morning completely drenched in pain and, and soreness because of what they have gone through, because of the, quote, suffering of their training. I think about my life, and I think about the things that, that, that I go through in my regular life. Sometimes I find myself bemoaning the hardships of my life. I bemoan all of the aches and pains that either come naturally or they come because of what the world is putting me through or because of some spiritual aches and pains, because of conflict with people or difficulty or wrestling with, with problems or whatever may be the case. But then when I think about those two side by side, I have to ask why. Why can those athletes put themselves to such suffering and pain and soreness and hardship, and when they wake in the morning, they don't bemoan it? They get up and they go train again. Why do they get up and rejoice over it? They wake up and they feel their back ache and they, they hear it pop and they stretch out their muscles and they see the bruises on their arms because they've been working at blocking but they don't bemoan it. They rejoice in it. But here I am bemoaning all of these things in my life, complaining about my spiritual soreness, my bruises. What's the difference? It's a difference of perspective. It's a difference of what the end goal is in mind. What is the purpose of the suffering? This is what I think the scriptures have been trying to get into me from the very first day that I came to Christ trying to get into me a renewed vision of what God wants to do in us, how he's working in us, how often the suffering of our lives is for our good and for his glory, and that's the truth that is so lost. That's the reason that I bemoan. That's the reason that I don't wake up in the morning glad to be sore. It's because I have lost sight. The sands of time, perhaps, have gotten into the eyes of my vision. I've lost sight of what God is doing in me. And that is something that we don't, don't want to lose in a text like this. It would be very easy for us to look at this and say, oh my goodness, their dead bodies are left in the street. They're being humiliated. This is horrible. And then we rise up in arms in defense. We want to fight for them. We want to defend them. We want to say, this isn't right. But what does the scripture say? The scripture says that we can rejoice. The scripture says that with a change of perspective, we can see that it's that very suffering, it's that very humiliation, it's that very difficulty and training that is leading us into the glory of God, that is increasing for us the glory that he has for us, that we will enjoy with him and the glory that we're giving to him because the perspective is different. Again, listen to what Tertullian said in that quote from the very beginning. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You can only say that with a renewed vision of God's purposes in the world. You can only say that if you really get a hold of the truth that Jesus is so serious about his glory and his plans for the world and his plans for us that he will not waste even one drop of effort to bring them about for our good. You could only say that then. Or listen to Charles Spurgeon, who actually turns 188 today. He says, Never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. 
The ship of the church never sails so gloriously along as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. Wow. That's the vision. That's the renewed vision. That's the perspective that is needed. That is what I have to remember. That is what you have to remember when you go through all the battering and the bruising of the Christian life, when you wake up spiritually sore and tired and depleted. That's what you have to remember. If you don't, you'll just assume what I typically assume. Uh, That was all for nothing. That's not accomplishing anything. But that's not true. Well, don't take Spurgeon's word for it. Let me give you a couple examples from Scripture. In Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 40, listen to the way that these believers responded to adversity and difficulty. It says, they followed his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and, and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council. What's the word? Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not stop teaching and preaching the good news of Jesus as the Christ. What is happening here in Revelation 11, in heaven and on earth, among the believers who are witnessing Dead Witnesses Day? They are rejoicing. Yeah, of course, they are sorrowful. It's a sorrowful thing that's happening. But deep within their hearts, there is a rejoicing. And echoing throughout heaven, there is a rejoicing because of their faithfulness and what God is accomplishing. Not only that, listen to Hebrews 10. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Partly by being made a public spectacle through insults and distress, and partly by becoming companions with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised." There it is again, straight from Scripture, the same vision, the same perspective. It helps us to focus. And if you can bear one more quote, this is actually from an author, Carl Truman, who wrote a relatively new book called Strange New World. In there, he talks a brief bit about how Christians of this day and in the Scriptures and even beyond were known for their focus in the face of the opposition of the world focusing on what Christ had called them to do. Listen to what he says. Early Christians did not spend their time denouncing the evils of the emperor and his court. Rather, they argued positively that Christians made the best citizens, the best parents, the best servants, the best neighbors, the best employees, and that they should be left alone and allowed to carry on with their day-to-day lives without being harassed by the authorities. What was their focus? Their focus was on what God had called them to do. They were focused on being witnesses, and that's what they wanted to be. So all of their effort, all of their energy, all of their celebrating is being packed in to this desire to be faithful witnesses. It is their priority. Their focus was on Christ and his calling on their lives. 
We're reminded in texts like this, I'm reminded of what really matters. You know, there are only three things that will last in the world. God, God's word, and the souls of men. When you boil it down, that's what really matters. And it brings for us a good point of application, this question. How are we focusing on those three? How are you doing focusing on those three? We spent a little time uh, thinking about this in our community group this week, asking that question, perhaps even putting it on a scale lightly. Between one and 10, in these different areas, how are you doing? How is your focus on God, your adoration of him, your praying to him, your loving him, your receiving of his love for you? One to 10. How is your commitment to the word of God? Are you regularly feeding on the word of God? Where is it? Is it a three? Is it a four? Is it a seven? Is it a nine? Is it really a 10? Praise God if it is. And third, the souls of men. Where is that? Where, where are you on the spectrum of your focus on serving the souls of men, the grace of God that he's given us to proclaim? We certainly should expect suffering for Christ. Knowing what God did to his son to bring about his purposes, we should not expect that we will be spared from suffering as well. But we can, with these believers and many others from down through the ages, rejoice even even on dead witnesses' day. But it requires us, again, to have this focus. And that's our application next, is that we would focus, focus, focus on God, his word, and the souls of men. Write that down. Discuss that in community groups this week. Let's rally together around that as we consider finally this last truth, and it is the reason that we rejoice. The last truth is that God's witnesses always rise again. Sometimes it looks real bad. Sometimes your life My life looks really bad. Things are going downhill quickly. You are really suffering or you are really sinning. You're really struggling. It looks real bad. Here in this text, this looks really bad. The witnesses now have been, the beast came out and waged war on them and then killed them and then humiliated them, laying their bodies strewn in the streets for three and a half days while everybody celebrated and threw a party and gave each other gifts to celebrate their death because of how much they hated the two witnesses because all they ever did was prophesy and and torment us on the earth. It looks really bad. But be assured, as we are here, that God's promises never fail. It says, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet. And great fear fell upon those who were watching them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that time, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the language, I believe, of real worship. That here, in the resurrection of the two witnesses, And all that came after that, there is a kind of fear that strikes into the heart of some of the people, and they are glorifying the God of heaven. 
He has worked in their hearts through these witnesses, even through a situation that looked really, really bad. It was bleak right before we hit verse 11. But then God does it. He breathes new life into his witnesses. We take that as real comfort to our own lives, even today, that since he didn't spare us the suffering as he didn't his own son, we know that he will not spare us the resurrection that we will have in him. This is an astounding event in history when these witnesses are raised to life from the streets in the vision in verse 11, and they are called up and people give glory. We really do have the value of looking through this text and back to the great pictures that we have in Scripture of our unity with Christ. And that's finally, as we come to a close, something I want to encourage all of us to take seriously. Memory is an incredible gift. I think it's given to us for the very purpose that we would remember what's most important. It'd help us gain that focus that we've been talking about. And in particular, it is to reflect upon our unity with Christ. In these times when you're feeling really sore and beat up, when life is getting really hard and people are are against you or abandoning you or attacking you or whatever may happen, when your sinful heart, your own flesh is rising up and is troubling you so, or even the devil is bringing temptations upon you in whatever way that he can under God's control and care. We need to remember again, we belong to Christ. We are united to him. This is why he has given us memory. We have such a capacity for memory as human beings that God has given us in his wisdom. I recently read that according to Northwestern University psychology professor Paul Reber, our brains have the capacity to store two petabytes of data. You've probably never even heard of that. I hadn't either. It's the equivalent of three million hours of television shows. Your brain can hold all of this, nearly 4,256 gigabyte iPhones, all in your little brain. Now the question is, what are we remembering? We do have the problem of losing our memory. And we do have the problem of false memories coming back again. But it is a call for us here from this text and many others to focus our minds on what is true and most important, and that is our unity with Christ. That just as we suffer with him, we will rise with him. We need that truth. That's why we are so thankful for the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Why do you think Jesus gave those to us? Because they're symbols, they're pictures, they're remembrances. So we ought to reflect upon them. Every month we reflect upon them when we take the Lord's Supper together. We can reflect upon them in between those times as well. Taking it or not, we can reflect upon that. But in particular, we'll have a great opportunity next Sunday to, at the anniversary dinner to see baptism again and reflect upon that. This is what we want to reflect upon. We want to reflect upon our unity with Christ. And you can do that by thinking about what baptism means. Have you thought about that? You'll see it again in just a week. Why is it that we start off standing in the water and then go down and then come up again? It's an exact mimicry of Jesus who lived, died, and rose again. It is saying, I am united with Christ in such a way that I have lived, I have died, and I will rise again. 
Therefore, that remembrance to us is what ought to keep us going. It's one of those basic truths that we need to keep focused on, keep our minds remembering our unity with Christ in that way. It's what will carry us through. We mentioned earlier that today is, is yet again a celebration of Juneteenth, the official emancipation of the slaves in June 19th, 1865. And this is a reminder to us not only of that incredible day in history, but it is a reminder to me of something else. It's a reminder to me of the incredible perseverance that preceded that and continued even after that. That's what's really amazing. It's not so amazing to me that, that, that we emancipated slaves as much as it is that they persevered. They persevered in such incredible ways. When I look back at the history of those times, I am amazed at how often Christ is there. Even here, to think about what carried them through, the spirituals that they sang in those days, here was one that I found just very simple and very helpful and a great reminder here of what we're saying about baptism. It was called Take Me to the Water. It was very simple. Take me to the water, take me to the water, take me to the water to be baptized. None but the righteous, none but the righteous, none but the righteous shall see God. That's a simple truth that we want to take. Take that with you. Think about your baptism. Go back to the water and what it symbolizes that you lived, died, and rose again. And he is your hope that now you are righteous and you see him and you know him and you will be with him. That's the final application this morning is that we would reflect on our unity in Christ through these ordinances, in particular baptism. And look forward to next Sunday when we will witness this again and we'll have a fresh reminder of it. It is so important, I think, from this text that we remember that suffering is not foreign to God's people. And we have an incredible opportunity that he's given to us to glorify him in the midst of it, to revel in it, even to welcome it in a strange way that if God wills for us to suffer, big or small, that he will carry us because we belong to him. If that's true of you, if it's not true of you, if you're not a Christian, you don't belong to Christ, let today be the day. Come to Christ, confess your sin, place your trust in him once and for all and begin following him with us. We want to help you. Let us know if that is something that God is doing in you or a decision that you have made so that we can walk with you. Let's pray together now as we prepare our hearts to sing once again. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks this day because of your incredible faithfulness. It's because of your witnesses that we have come to Christ. It's because we have heard the gospel. It's because you sent to us voices that let us know about our sin, yes, and let us know about your grace. And as we look forward in the book of Revelation to the vision of things to come, we are marveling at your power, your miraculous power and grace to sustain your witnesses even in those times and to bring about glory for yourself through suffering and death yet again. And so we pray that you would help us. Help us to focus upon the things that matter most. Help us to focus upon your grace and your help and help us now to be witnesses so that we may glorify you and enjoy you and that the world may even in some small way rejoice because you are our king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.